Welcome to Cinemakers, Steven Soderbergh. This is episode 20, Ocean's 13 from 2007. I'm Mike Manzi. I am Tobin Addington. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I just realized how many numbers you had to say in that introduction. I mean, like we've said it every time that we've introduced an Ocean's movie. We have the episode number, we have the Ocean's number, and we have the year. Like, that's a lot of numbers. There's a lot of numbers going on here. So before we saw Ocean's 12, I remembered not liking it as much, and I was pleasantly surprised. Here, my memory was that I really liked this, and watching it again, I was like, oh, this isn't as good as I remembered. I still really liked it, but I think it's just... If you didn't see the first two movies, I I would imagine this is very difficult to follow, and not very enjoyable. Yeah, I, I like it as well. I, I like it as much as I've ever liked it, which, you know... Is, is sort of somewhere around the range of part two. But watching it this time, I had a lot of fun. And yeah, I, even knowing the first two movies and knowing the characters, it's still not easy to follow. Uh, I feel like it's speaking its own language and like I was able to sort of pick up more of it again this time. Uh, but I did enjoy it. I had fun. I think it's a fun, a fun addition, especially for a part three of, of any series, which I'll get into later. <gasps> a part three? My Yeah, it's our first ever part three that we're reviewing. Oh, well, I think you've done... Oh, no, High we did School Matrix Musical Revolutions. 3. We've done Matrix Revolutions, and you've done High School Musical 3. Uh, yes. Okay, but, mm-hmm. but here we are again at a part three. So. <laughs> for the third time. You're at a third part three. Oh, there it is. <laughs> yeah, I, I had the same memory that you, you did of not really caring for this movie before, like, the previous two times that I had seen it. And I didn't like it, I think, as well as maybe you guys did. I, uh, I did like... Like there are moments in it that I think really work. I think this one hangs together overall this uh, less well than the previous ones. There's, there's more of a haphazard quality to this and not necessarily in a good way. And I think that that um, – and then I have a couple other issues that we'll get to. It doesn't make it a bad movie by any means. But, but I do think you're right. I hadn't thought about <laughs> having seen this with not having seen the other two movies. And I think you're right. I think this would be very difficult to follow if you're not clued in on who these people are. So after after the opening two-minute scene where Rusty, Brad Pitt, bails on the job he's in mid-job, like not only does he answer his cell phone in the middle of a job, but he just leaves in the middle of a bank robbery, which I just love. I love that too because I used to work at a KB toy store and uh, <laughs> he, he like they break into the KB and they burrow through the wall into where the bank vault is. And it's all in one continuous shot too, which is great. Pretty economic. Wasn't there another movie where they broke into I a I believe drop- it was Stolen, right? With Nick Cage in the opening sequence. Oh, they- yeah. No, no, no. That's not what I'm thinking about. There was, I th- maybe it's, maybe it, no, and maybe it is Stolen, where they rob a diamond store or something by going in through a toy store. That's Stolen? Yeah, wow. yeah. It's Stolen, yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> they do the old switcheroo. Well, anyway, so after those first two minutes, which I really like, we're basically into the heist, like three minutes into the movie. We don't have character introductions. We just have Al Pacino show up, and he is against our guy, who... This is now sort of a flashback, because Ruben is in a bed, non-responsive. Like, what, what's he? what's his medical condition? It's not really important important, but he's just bedridden and like seems very poorly off. I, I thought it was that he'd had a heart attack and then was going to go to this meeting with Al Pacino anyway. And so goes to the meeting with Al Pacino, the meeting with Al Pacino goes bad, and he then then he goes catatonic. Isn't that what happened? Oh, right. so that wasn't a flashback? Yeah. That was no. like a... Oh, okay. Yeah, we have a scene where he's getting ready and saying, no, I'm going to go do it. I can do it. And then goes off okay. to the meeting. I think that's, again, it's not terribly clear. And I don't know that it hangs together really well. But I think that's what we're meant to meant to see. Gotcha. 
Yeah, and like I, I think of the problems this movie has, this is one of my major problems. I, I, I mean, I almost feel like Ruben needed to go full coma, right? And we needed to have like Don Cheadle reading him the letters later by his bedside to snap him out of it. I, or like maybe it's too dark for an ocean's time to have some fun is like kill him off. But I was also kind of fuzzy on his condition, to be quite honest, because he's like awake and you know, response. He's almost like Dougie, uh, Dougie Jones yeah. at, at times. Douglas Jones. Peaks, right. Yeah. Like <laughs> speaking of Vegas, Mr. Jackpots, like that's basically <laughs> what he turns into here. So it was, I, I was also kind of having a little trouble with that aspect of his character. I think that's kind of the problem, though, is when you have a cast this big, you sort of have to sideline someone. You know what I mean? And he has his moment at the end when he shows up to the casino and Brad Pitt's like, oh, I had to go pick something up. But like, when you're working with this many actors, and we also drop Julia Roberts and someone else. Who else we drop? Catherine Zeta. Catherine Zeta-Jones. Like, yeah, women just do not stick through in this, it's I guess. It's not their fight. It's not their fight, right? right. right. Doesn't he say that, like, right at the... It's like the first four lines yeah. of the movie. They but is it to each other. Is it any of their fights? Like, it just they just spurn Ruben. Like, it's Ruben's fight. But they were sort of bred by Ruben, right? They tell... Okay. There's a quick scene right. where they talk about Ruben, like, teaching him craps and, you know, telling him how to eye a false hand or whatever and later... So, yeah, I kind of feel like, you know, he was their surrogate father, should have gone into maybe a little more of that in, into part three, go back to the first one and explore these relationships that, you know, weren't ever really there in the first place. Yeah, flashback. Craft them, right, find them, uh, and sort of exploit that angle. Yeah, really, the throwaway lines at the beginning about about the with the women not being involved is that feels to me so so clearly like we can't get them the schedules don't work we don't have room for in this movie let's just get them out of this movie in in two lines and i kind of admire the audacity of writing them out of the movie that sort of quickly and easily and the one thing these ocean movies have had going for them as we've talked about is that they're they're very self-aware of themselves as movies and i think that that that's kind of a, if you're going to do it that just do it and i think they accomplish it and move on and i don't really it doesn't really bother me that they're not in it then Except that it is, it does become just about a bunch of dudes. But you got to make room for. There's two bad guys, basically. There's a guy and a girl, right? Like Pacino and Ellen Barkin. So she is basically the lead female this time around, and it's like a flop of Julia Roberts being the good sort of girl under the thumb of the casino owner. She's like a bad girl going along with the casino owner, sort of like wants to be with him, but he seems to sort of be just like too into himself. But I feel like they never give her anything to do. Right. Like she's yeah. just this, the well, that's the problem too. She's just she's not on the ocean's team, so it's a little hard. Right, to for her. because she's just there to look good, and she does, and she's there to get seduced by Matt Damon pulling the Brody, which is their name for him with the big nose, and that's all. Like that's all she does, and she gets conned into the smartphone or the the gold Samsung phone. She gets conned into losing the diamonds. I mean, it's just there's nothing there's no there's nothing redeeming about her. I know that. I mean, she's a big actress, but she's not a Julia Roberts level actress, but even like when you have Julia Roberts, like you know that she's going to have like redemption or like an important role to play. And here it's just like, there's no concern or no thought given to her character at all. She's just there to be sort of victimized and not like in a terrible way. Cause she doesn't really do anything wrong. She's just trying to make Al Pacino happy when he's just impossible to please, but it's just, there's, there's nothing to root for her there. And there's nothing really to like about her. It's really hard because she shows up and I wrote in my notes, oh, right, Ellen Barkin with a big exclamation point because I'd forgotten she was in this. And I like her kind of brash presentation at the beginning. And I think that they make a real mistake in the movie and they do a disservice to her and, you know, and, and to sort of gender politics in the whole movie to, to make her 
like she, she, if imagine her being more menacing, imagine her being more, more effective. Imagine her seeing through some of the cons that come her way. What if she's the mastermind? Well, like Al, like it looks like Al Pacino is the guy, right? But right. she's actually pulling the strings. And if, if she instead they have her going ooey gooey over over the you know this note to Pacino about the phone and falling for everything, and then with the the scene we'll get to later, I'm 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 sure with Matt Damon and his fake nose, which plays kind of like it's kind of funny. Like that's a kind of the nose plays it, the nose you know. plays. But I think that what it it makes her so weak. She's suddenly not a threat in this movie at all really quickly and i and that that is i'm disappointed both in in their use of her as an actor uh, and and then what they've had her do i i think it's a problem with the writing but also i think maybe maybe and maybe she was the wrong like actor to have in the part i don't know but i i'm i'm excited when she shows up and then pretty soon as the movie goes along i i get very disappointed with what they're allowing her to do I'm trying to think. There's nothing in the notes on IMDb about like people who were almost here. Like the only close thing we had to that was that Soderbergh wanted Pacino, and then somebody convinced Pacino to do it. Like that's that's all. Like there's no. This was almost that person. But I wonder. As you were saying, I was trying to think of who else could play that role. You know who I think could have done it, and I don't know if it would have been great. But I would like to see Cameron Diaz in that role. Oh, you know the Oliver Stone football movie, Any Given Sunday. She plays that kind of character, the the daughter of the owner of a NFL team, and is a is a complete like a, she's she's you know hard as nails, uh, play hard in the boardroom kind of character. That would have been an interesting way to go. And I think that if you did that, and then you and you could still have a, a moment when she is when like the pheromone juice, the the Gilroy that they yeah. that could could then make more of a turn. Like she, it, it, sure, you know, I think that would have been more effective for sure. Yeah, I agree. You know, that's interesting. I mean, this movie just moves too quickly, but I also feel like this heist, which we're privy to sort of every turn behind the scene this time, we're like, we're part of the crew. We basically see behind the curtain. Which is weird. There's so many steps to their plan, you know? Like, there's too many steps at a point. You're just like, okay, I don't need to know all that. I want to be surprised when they're pulling this off, some of the stuff. And they definitely could have used that time to beef up the Ellen Barkin character. I was thinking this time around how interesting, like Tobin, like you said, if maybe she was an ex-thief, maybe oh. she and Rusty had a past, like they were these two blonde, like this blonde duo or something, and like she took him under her wing and he got seduced by the older woman and that was a mistake and yeah, they had a run-in, like all that kind of stuff. Um, I would have rather watched a little more of that this time around than seeing how the dice were made. Well, that part's fun, but... <laughs> That's like the best part of the movie. <laughs> yeah, well, maybe poisoning the five diamond award guy. Like, I get it. Like, we're going to yeah. punk him. You know, I don't need to see every punk, like, that he goes through, every every bad misfortune that he has. It's not necessary. Um, let me forget about him and then be reminded when he hits the jackpot at the end. Oh, yeah, like that guy. I don't want to say this movie is lazy, but I feel like it sort of runs into problems that we've seen on a bunch of movies that we've covered for different podcasts where like things are just about there and there's like so much to like about it. And there's just not that extra step paid to giving characters, you know, backstories or interactions. Like you were saying, I think it moves fast, but it's also, it also feels kind of, it's over two hours. You know what I mean? Like there's, Mm -hmm. there's, there's a lot in here. I think my biggest problem with the overall plot is that like, there's sort of one kind of central heist in that they are taking down that, biometric system or whatever that reads your body language and sees if you're genuinely winning or if you're scamming the system. But like, it's not like they're robbing a bank vault of $170 million or they're robbing, you know, this priceless diamond or whatever, the the egg, the Fabergé egg. They're probably making 
I don't know, 30 or 40 million collectively. And then the rest of the casino is making 450 million. Like it just, it doesn't feel as important to them. It's like the heist is just to take down Al Pacino, which I get, but at the same time, I kind of want to see our guys come out really on top as opposed, I mean, I guess I do get the diamonds at the end, but it just feels like there's not a lot in it for them. They're just sort of like, hey, like, let's just mess with this guy. Which I think is maybe fine, but for the central conflict right. of a movie, right. seems eh. right. Right, which is dovetails with a problem where it feels like maybe there's too much going. Like they're trying to do too many things, and I and I think that they started with this very strong idea of revenge, right? Of like their friend is is hurt by this guy, and they're gonna make him whole. They're gonna make it right, and then. You know, you want in the Oceans movies to add complication as you go, but they add so many complications that it stops being, even within the world of the Oceans movies, believable that they're doing what they're doing. And I think that there's a there's a sophistication in the intricacies of the heists in the previous movies that then this doesn't get to do because it's trying to do that computer system and steal the diamonds and outwit whatever uh, the night fox is is doing running around and um, how not to get screwed by Terry Benedict and the, the drill underneath the, like there, there's so many things going on which I realize is a is a, a problem that people can cite with the other movies but for whatever reason that those hung to their sort of central quest more directly and this feels so disparate I sort of like I would find myself losing the thread a little bit, not in a way that felt enjoyable, but in a way that sort of felt like a wasted opportunity in some way. Yeah, I almost feel like there's less story here and the heist is progressing the story less in ways where in the previous movies it, it, it did. And like in the previous movies, I felt like the heists were sort of accelerating plot and stuff. And like I understand why part two was more elaborate because they were jumping around Europe and we needed those twists and turns and it was a sequel and had to throw wrenches into things. Part one seemed just sort of more focused, like we're going to do this heist and even the audience is going to be fooled and we sort of got conned along with Benedict. And here, I mean, like, it it's weird because, like, the central goal is to, like, on opening night is for Bank right. to lose, like, enough money to lose his casino and basically end up going bankrupt and broke and everything. And then Ruben will get his property back. But... The weird thing is, like, it, it seems like such a simple thing, okay, but it has to go down so many different alleys and so many more doors than seems necessary, or like I said before, that we need to be privy to. It's okay if they're doing all this crazy stuff behind the scenes, but it gets to be a bit, a bit much, even if it is comical and, you know, just like the way it's sort of like stacked up on top of itself like that, it just becomes like a, this house of cards and it just like topples over at one point. Um, I, I mean, I do still think it's a lot of fun, but it doesn't work in the way that like the previous films did for me. I mean, there's so much attention paid to watching characters watch the heist prep. Like, we see so many people watching people, like, on body cameras. You know what I mean? Like, they're showing us all the cards, which is weird. I wasn't, honestly, I wasn't really paying attention to what they were prepping for the heist, because in my head, I didn't remember how this all played out. In my head, I was, like, trained by the past two movies that what we're seeing is not what's happening. Right, right. That they're prepping for something, but they're lying to the viewer. And I guess that's kind of a nice evolution of the series in that it's like, oh, there's not a twist, but it also, as the viewer, 
not that you, you know, it's not like you're watching a thriller movie and like, all right, like, give me the twist. Like, you know, pull the rug out from from under me or whatever. Like, you don't need that here, but you're kind of waiting for it. And then it doesn't happen. And then the end game is still the same, that all of our handsome, charming heroes get everything they want and the bad guys, you know, lose everything. And so the end game is the same, but we don't get that, like, oh, that's what they're actually doing. I think we're meant to read the way that they steal the diamonds and and fool the night fox as being that. I just don't think that's successful. I mean, I mean, it's successful. It's in the moment. It's kind of satisfying, but it doesn't have the revelatory quality that the that the previous movies did in those moments where you realize, oh, that's what they were doing that I was wondering about the whole time. I remember Vincent Cassell, the night fox's yoga moves in part two, and then you realize, oh, he was training to go through the, like the laser grid. Those were good setups and payoffs and this i think there's stuff that's set up that isn't paid off and there are payoffs that i don't really that just don't don't hang together as well i think we're meant to have that some of that same experience but there was something else that, about the ending that that i thought was missing here in the previous movies especially in number one but but to some degree in number two there was a sense of them being kind of like there was a kind of a sad quality at the end do you remember that that was like there was like forlorn yeah, and it was over they'd done so. their... well, especially because Clooney goes Clooney goes to jail at the end of the first one like he knows he's getting caught like there's that sadness too yeah and, and they've done their job and they're all going to part ways and they may not see each other again for a while but they did this great thing and this didn't have that to me at all this the, and even though they I think that again I think they tried a little bit with that all the, the various endings that happened in this movie, but it didn't have that same wistful quality to it. I don't need this movie to be the same as the previous ones. And it's hard, right? With, with part threes, you're comparing, especially when the first two have been as successful as they were for, for us as viewers, you sort of want this one to, to, you know, to be as successful. And so you can't help but compare it against the previous one. I don't know. I feel a little bit bad about doing that, but I did miss that quality. It's tough with part three, man, because like you've already major departure with part two if you've done it correctly i i think of like aliens you know oceans 12 stuff like chainsaw massacre 2 like these take the original and just like pump it up with budget take it to the next level and just really sort of like try and take it in, in an interesting new direction and then when you get to part three it's like where where can you go except sort of like repeat yourself but different it's like we're back in the first movie a lot but it's like a weird sort of alternate timeline version of what, it what year way. is it <laughs> exactly like i don't know i just feel like it's too repetitive if we're gonna like go back to vegas everyone you know the audience wants to go back to vegas so i think i think that's why we're back in vegas i think they could have gone to like macau or something and it could have been like a little cooler pulled off that heist but like we really need to boggle the mind when you get to part three and that bothers people like what people don't want to see for instance you get here and danny ocean's the bad guy right, running right. the casino shitting on rusty and all the rest of it. like you you know i i think that's where this should have gone but like no one's gonna buy that no you know maybe they will nowadays it's tough like that's what i'm saying is like you know it's a crapshoot <laughs> i want to use more vegas terminology Some Bernie Mac like, terminology. It's, risk. it's super risky to really do that so like this is kind of like comfort zone especially when the series spend so much time setting up that like these guys like everything's gonna work out for them and like you there's there's nothing to not like about them like the the only thing i think you could possibly not like about you know rusty or danny is that they're mean to matt damon right like that's the only thing and even that's in such good spirits and like he still likes them so like you can't hold that against them yeah it's building his character more. exactly At the end he's more he's like just like them they've molded him what's interesting is 
to compare this to another trilogy that there are references littered throughout this movie to, most notably with our main bad guy in Al Pacino in The Godfather. There's lots of little Godfather references in terms of quotes and in terms of, like, actions. Those movies are widely considered, obviously, to be like two of the best movies of all time. I've never seen the third one. Like, I've heard such, like, average, bland things about the third one that I've just never seen it. And that's crazy to me, first of all. <laughs> I'm not comparing Ocean's Eleven and Ocean's Twelve to The Godfather Part 1 and 2, but... I think you. I think maybe just a little bit. But, that's but, you're, okay. but you kind of. Yeah, I think I'll you're kind of supposed yeah. to. I think that's what he wants you to do, right? Because he not only takes the star of those movies and puts them in his movie, he then takes lines. I hear cars pulling in. I hear whispering conversations. I hear Linus crying. Why don't you tell me when everyone else seems to know? It's what Vino Corleone says to Tom Hagen when he wakes up. Or like, there's a couple other things. Like they're just yeah, there's lines yeah. like literally ripped from those movies and. I don't know how you're supposed to compare them, what comparisons you're supposed to draw between them, but it feels so in your face at times that it has to be intentional, right? It's funny, I like I guess so, but I I didn't pick up on that stuff because I don't feel like Pacino is like all that with it in this movie. You know, like if they want him to feel like a Michael Corleone type character, if they want you to think of that, it's like at least I I don't even thinking of Dog Day Afternoon of an inept bank robber. Like this guy can't see anything past his own nose, you know? Like I was kind of disappointed in his character not catching on to some of this stuff. Like having crime wit and all that kind of thing. Like I wish it was for me, more overt, to be quite honest with you. If it's there, I, I guess the movie's just moving too quick for me to, to pick up on it. Yeah, I guess it didn't stand out to me. I, I guess for me, it feels like the Godfather references fall into more into the, hey, we're playing with film history and trilogies, and we're self-aware that we're making a third movie, and it might not be uh -huh. as good as the other ones. And there are smart enough filmmakers involved in this in this movie to know what those references are going to get them. I think we are meant to read it less. I don't think we're meant to compare the plot so much or the characters. To, to my mind, it feels more like they're playing less than they're trying to draw anything, any sort of direct references. Whether the references are supposed to mean anything other than, hey, wink, wink, you've seen The Godfather too, haven't you? Which is something that, again, feels like they've done better in the previous movies and that in this one is gotten a little a little tiresome or it's not tethered as much to the to the central plot or something. I don't know. Maybe what it is, they, is they didn't do enough with it, as you say, that, that uh, not that they had to go hardcore with it, but Mo Green <laughs> shot in the eye. Yeah. Like. <laughs> I mean, look, you want your you, I think you want your Oceans movies to be fast, to be fun, to be smart, to hang together enough with the plot that you you are sort of with the movie. You want these guys to succeed. You don't want something terrible to happen to, to any of them. All of those things are, are sort of hamstring what you're able to do with the trilogy. In order to do all that stuff, it's hard for me to imagine a, a third movie, you know, a, a, a third movie in the trilogy that would satisfy that stuff and do something new. So I'm, I am very sympathetic to these guys. And we've been hard on this movie. Like there are moments, I think there's some really nice moments where Pacino is pretty menacing. This was, this is deep into his shouting phase. And there's a moment at the end where he has this kind of whispered threat in a close up to Clooney. And my gosh, that moment makes my skin crawl. He is. And I, what I want to know is how many takes did Soderbergh let him scream through that before he told him to do it all in a whisper and how effective that is. There's a, a moment that was in all the trailers where Terry Benedict is like 
checking out his oh, suit yeah. and stuff to like oh, go yeah. do. Mm-hmm. And he has this line where right where where Clooney he says to Clooney, "I was born ready," and then walks off out of the shot and Clooney does this epic eye roll that reminds yeah. me of my six-year-old who, who rolls his <laughs> eyes with his whole body at this point. It's like there are those, that's what I mean about there are moments in this and there, there are times when Matt Damon is really, it seems like he's having a really fun time that all hangs together. And then you get these, these subplots like the stuff going on in Mexico with Casey Affleck, which, which I don't know how you guys felt about for me. I, I every time I was there, I wanted to get back to the, to the action. I don't know how well those are. I just love that whole idea that Casey Affleck goes down there to be part of, like, he, to play the small role in the heist and, you know, put the metallic die or whatever in the dice. And he gets so wrapped up in the plight of the Mexican worker that he almost ruins the whole heist because he sets up that whole walkout, whatever, protest, revolt. Like, I think that's so funny because that's so true to his character, you know, him and Scott Kahn, that they're just, like, dumb. Like, they're not good at their jobs. They shouldn't be on this crew because everybody else on this crew is, like, the utmost professional. Like, they all have their part to play. They all nail it to a T. And here, like, Casey like it's so wrapped up in we work too long, we don't get paid enough, like, we gotta do something about this. I love that. Like, I don't know if it fits in this movie, but I just love that idea. It's almost like an afterthought. They have people who have to get the drill, they have to, like, figure out a way to get these diamonds out. Like, there's such high-level thinking things that they need to get done to pull off this, find the way to beat this system that can't be beat, that, you know, they need to find three minutes or whatever. Like, there's all these things that, like, are going to take 18 months to do, and they're like, yeah, just go down there and put some powder in the dye, and then... For it to blow up into this whole thing where he almost ruins everything because he wants them to get paid more, I love that so much. And again, I don't know if that fits in this movie, but I just I, I genuinely enjoy that. Well, I'm glad because I really don't. And I think that I think that what this movie, if this movie had been written to the level of the previous movies, what would have happened is all that would have played out the way it did, and then we would have learned that even though they were kind of like complaining about it and wondering what to do about it, and you know, not panicking, but like freaking out about it it all actually was on purpose like I, I was waiting for the flip to be like oh look we were playing you the audience that this was Casey Affleck just sort of going off the off the reservation and I think that because it doesn't do that because it wants me to believe that that's really happening that it's playing that straight I find that all that stuff very tiresome I am kind of on Joey's side here. Yeah. Like, I don't think it really <laughs> belongs in the movie, but I love it as a diversion from Vegas to kind of get us away from there for a while. And I also think this is what should have happened to more of the crew is like everybody has like a mission of do part of the plan. I really feel like this whole stuff with the drill should have taken Don Cheadle half the film and we should have seen like the reason they need two drills isn't because one like breaks or whatever it's because like maybe he loses it overboard shipping it overseas and you know has to go and turn around and get the other one and they're like what's taking him so long? Like I almost like think like this is this kind of stuff I want to see aside from so much attention uh, otherwise like to the five diamond guy to rest of the heist like I, I like these kinds of diversion things but again like yeah there aren't enough of them that it feels like cohesive like it does feel sort of like an episode of the uh, idiot brothers kind of like cut into the ocean movies like and now back to oceans 13 yeah. well and I also like it because Casey Affleck in 2017 and the last few movies he's done I feel like he's just this I mean he's a great actor obviously he won best actor last year he can do comedy because he does it well here, but I feel like his roles today are so somber and so serious, like Manchester by the Sea and like all these movies he's doing lately. I'm sure he's doing comedy, so I just can't think of him right at the moment. I just love seeing him in this role, just being dumb and having fun and just 
being different from what he's sort of become, you know, Gone Baby Gone, he's really super depressive. And I just like that he is able to just be so silly and be genuine and heartfelt like he is in every role, but here just like for it to so derail the plan. And I understand that it could have been better. It could have been more tied in thematically, but it worked for me. But he hasn't been genuine. He's always pulling shit. He's always taking the piss out of Scott Kahn. He's never... But it feels like he cares about these people for, yeah, for no exactly. reason. More for than no, his own brother. For no reason. That's exactly. That's exactly. <laughs> I, I, you know, the other thing is, it always felt to me as we came into these scenes that, like, I imagined Soderbergh prepping Che and being like, "Oh, let's throw some of this stuff in." Like, I don't have time for it mm. in five hours. I'm of, working on my Spanish. Yeah, in five hours right? of Che. <laughs> so let's toss some of it into this movie. You know, we don't have to to belabor the point. But I, I get that you guys are enjoying the diversion and that and that you're enjoying what how this maybe pushes his character. Around reveals a new part of his character. I just wish I'd, I would rather spend this time with a lot of the other uh, other characters in, in, the, uh, in the movie. Well, actually, it's this scene and like what Mike was saying about wanting to be more global that, again, I think we mentioned this on either the 11 or 12 episode, that this is kind of like a spiritual predecessor in ways, even though it came out at the same time, to the Fast and Furious franchise. Like, I feel like that has like each person has his part to play. And watching this movie, again, I was kind of reminded, like, we have Andy Garcia in a previous role as the bad guy, right? And he's now brought in to be part of the crew, which is the like the new like trademark of the Fast and Furious movies. Like, I'm sure for Fast 9, Charlize is going to be in the you know what I mean? So, like, I feel like in that way, where Fast and Furious, everybody has a part to play, they have to go all over the world to get whatever, you know, you send Casey Affleck down to Mexico, you could send Basher somewhere, you could send Don Cheadle wherever, Mike, like you were saying, to get a drill. We send Matt Damon to England here to pick up Eddie Izzard, right? Like, do more of that. Hmm. Could you imagine if this movie series departed in part three the way Fast did with Tokyo Drift? Oh, that this actually like, took place what? after Ocean 16? <laughs> <laughs> well, not only that, but, like, imagine if most of the movie are entirely new characters. I like, love it. You don't even get the old crew. And then, you know, maybe halfway through, Danny and Rusty show up, or maybe just Rusty, or whatever, or, like, not even. They go to Don Cheadle's mother. I don't know. But, like, you get my point. Like, I feel like Tokyo Drift's a great movie in the Fast franchise uh, because of, like, all these new characters in that universe, and it's like, what? Like, I'm dropped into the middle of Japan, and it's, like, all new friends, and it's... I, I don't know. I feel like that works uh, for that reason and this this might have you don't know I mean we'll never know obviously but that's just another thing a part three could try to get away with would you guys watch that if, if it was oh yeah no absolutely cast? if it's if it's by Soderbergh yes, that's in this exactly. world if it's with this tone I would yeah Honestly, thinking about it now, the fact that this movie isn't as good, or I don't like it as much as the first two, makes me more excited for Ocean's 8, whenever that's going to come out next year or whatever. Because I feel like if this was as good as the first two, I'd be like, well, there's no need to sort of mess with it. We sort of have this, in a way, perfect trilogy or whatever. I don't want to tamper with that. But the fact that like this wasn't as fulfilling as it could have been makes me think, oh, well, there's room to grow with Ocean's 8. Yeah, and if you're going to do another one, like to do an adjacent movie, to do a movie in the world with other characters is a smart thing to do, as opposed to trying to get all these guys together, well, as many of them as are alive, and do a, you know, a 14. I'm so glad they're not gonna, not doing that, because that you would really have to, to sort of break the the formula for that. And then, you, then it's not going to be an Ocean's movie. You know, it's not going to be able to be what these movies have been. I think it's going to be tough in a way because I feel like 
partially the ocean franchise is kind of just attached to like casinos in my mind in my mind I don't, because that's where it like came from you know we even get the Sinatra reference in this shook movie Sinatra's shook hand. Sinatra's hand that's just a great line that's such a great yeah, line and it's it so much meaning behind it you should know better yeah and like I, I mean you get it right away the respect and I'm just a little curious like we left Vegas or we haven't gone gaming in part two in Oceans 12, but we're back here now. Are, you know, What's going to make it distinct in Oceans 8 from just another great heist film that's out there you know, these days? Like, I, I almost wonder, is it, is it going to need to rest upon gambling heist the way the Furious movies, you know, now everything is a car, you know, they need to be in cars, you know what I'm saying? Like, we can't have them running around too much in those films. They need to be driving a lot. So, I, I, don't, I'm, I don't know. I wonder if it can break out of that in in my mind at least away from you know gambling heists do we know the plot of oceans 8 at all or no or are they not really release anything i don't know the thing about it no but does it matter to you guys like if they came back for oceans 13 if we were you know if we didn't even go to macau or whatever if we were just like robin you know a single dude i don't know i think i think they get a little bit of a of a do-over a start over when when you start with a new trilogy in the same universe i think you get to scale it back i wouldn't mind if it was if it was a single dude i i would be more i would love a, a sort of a movie that was more elaborate in the way that they went about ripping off one dude than having like you know 18 different dudes they're trying to rip off i i think that yeah i don't i don't know i don't have any great expectations about whether it's in vegas or not that doesn't that doesn't seem as vital to me about the movie the vegas setting seems to me for for 11 and, and 13 part of that is just they're in a playground they're in a place where right. where they're sort of it's disneyland for grown-ups right and i think that that's you can find other versions of that i can't think off the top of my head but like disneyland I, no yeah, right. <laughs> new but orleans I, yeah yeah i think new orleans yeah. would be good yeah or, or as you say you go to monte carlo or you go like you could go other places that, that i guess that's all that's still gambling but you know you do it in paris you can do something in paris you can do something in berlin i don't know but i feel like like that they have an opportunity to sort of reset the clock and our expectations for what an Oceans movie is with these women. I'm kind of disappointed, honestly, that they went back to Vegas for the 13. For 13, I feel like it was a conscious decision after people didn't love 12 as much. Like, oh, let's go back to what people loved about 11, which was the setting. But I feel like, to bring it back to the Fast and the Furious, each time they sort of top themselves. Like, they go from California to Florida, which, I mean, nobody likes, <laughs> nobody likes Too Fast and Furious. But then they go to Tokyo, and then they go back to California, but it's bigger. And then they go to Brazil, and then they're wherever, they're wherever, then they're in New York. You know, you got to keep sort of in one way keep upping yourself and i understand that like these are two totally different universes where that you know physics don't sort of apply in that universe and here everything is pretty pretty realistic i think but i feel like they've done vegas you do vegas you do europe for oceans 12 you have the whole globe like it feels like a movie on that level and then for them to just go back to where they were feels cautious yeah i I guess like at this point you can treat them almost in a way as like a Bond franchise where you have these characters with these skill sets established so you could just pretty much place them anywhere and let them do their thing. That's kind of what they're doing with the Fast franchise. It's like everyone at this point is a stereotype in that we got the tech guy, you know, we got the gearhead. Well, they're all gearheads, but like (laughs) You know, everyone has their special skill. And I feel like in the Oceans movies, it's like that as well. It's like as long as they can grease anybody around the globe, they can get their hands on whatever they need. They can do whatever job, you know, we want to see so right i don't feel like they're limited now 
I, for one, don't want them to go back to casinos either, but I just worry that a major studio sees that as a linchpin to the franchise just because they've spent so much time at casinos. So I'm only a little worried in that regard. I mean, maybe you go to New York. Maybe you do something with Wall Street. There you go. Oh, there was one thing I felt was kind of new for Soderbergh visually was all the split screen in the third act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When the heist is going on, I mean, it goes so crazy overboard, but I love that. I just felt like it was a guy getting it out of his system and trying every trick in the book and just doing whatever. And it was just really fun and playful that kind of went with the movie and, and mixed it up at that point. It was, was a nice little visual thing to, like, to follow Oh, one thing I actually wanted to point out, this is unrelated. If I remember right, in these movies between where we are now in Ocean's 13 and today, Soderbergh's kind of going to become sort of affiliated is maybe the wrong word, but sort of involved with, I feel, kind of like the alt-comedy scene. And in this movie, there are two very, very, very minor parts, but they go to that guy, they go to Armin Weitzman, who plays that really small role that, you know, Danny pays off his debts. And then there's the girl that Bernie Mac is talking to, enough said, she's the one who has the line or whatever, and both of them have gone on to do stuff like they were both in Burning Love and, you know, Armin Weitzman's gone on to go in Another Period and, like, all these really funny alt-comedy sort of the same cluster of comedians and showrunners and writers and creators and everything in LA, like the whole like kind of, for lack of a better word, like the UCB group, right? Like the Paul Shears and then Tasha Legeros and the Ricky Lindholm and all that. And I wonder if this is kind of like a pivot point where he's like, oh, there's this whole untapped market of people who are really, really funny. And even if I don't have them, I give them like a big role in a movie, they can be to sort of a comedy nerd recognizable or, you know, nail a really small bit role or whatever. I don't know if this is, but I, I haven't noticed any of those kind of people up to this point. So I was, kind of, I was sort of excited in here. I was like, I know them. And I looked up I'm like, oh yeah, I know them from everything. Like everything I watch has them in it. <laughs> yeah. And the informant is just sort of literally. Yeah, that's what I was like, thinking. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, it's great in that way. I remember watching that in theaters going like, holy shit, like, he's in this, he's in this, he's in this, she's in this, what's going on here? And one major, uh, like, comedy... Icon. Legend in here. Icon, yeah. Dave Osborne. Super Super Dave. Dave, Super Dave Funkhauser is (laughs) playing uh, Matt Damon's dad. In the most confusing role for me in the Ocean's trilogy have been Matt Damon's parents. (laughs) Are they actually federal agents? What is happening? No, with they're, these they're con men. Yeah, he has this. Damon has this line right where he says, "Like, Dad's got the greatest cover ever." Yeah, as an FBI agent. So he actually yes. is an FBI yes, agent. He's, yeah, he's okay. on his way into the FBI somehow. Yeah, like that is just fantastic at this point because, like, I, I, I'm never, I'm just never clear. Like, that's the one thing I'm always like, is when they cut to the FBI, I'm like, is that a real FBI building or has he just like every call is going to that building and it's like an office somewhere? but that's crazy. It's so funny that, like, and this is a joke that I will never tire of, like, that, that, you know, Linus is always sort of the baby of the group, and this is now two movies in a row where his mommy and daddy have to bail him out yes. of trouble. Like, I feel like this is more kind of part of the plan, although... Yeah, it is. It is at, part of the plan. But it, but it also feels like he's not... It feels like he, he wants to do it on his own, right? Oh, like, it's he's not, like... It's not... Yeah, it's not his part of the plan. But when he says... When he re- when um, uh, Matt Damon says earlier to, to Rusty and Clooney, he says, you guys have been talking to my dad? Like, they're working that plan already and he just comes in as like a fail safe for uh, Damon. Yeah, I feel like there's maybe two wrenches thrown into this scheme that they could have made into a bigger deal and maybe been more recognizable. One is when Funkhauser shows up, they call the FBI to check on suspicious characters or whatever they're running background checks or 
something and um he gets the call so i figured like since he got the call like he'll be in on the scheme now because like you know he's been activated in a way um they maybe necessarily didn't need him but now that the fbi is involved like he's on it and then the other instance which i wish was a bigger deal is when when one of them gets caught with the blackjack dealing and they're going to recognize him from the prince and so casey affleck has to like change everybody's face in their yeah, mugshot, yeah. and then Don Cheadle comes in and as like, evil that, Knievel, like, yeah, evil Knievel thing and everything. Like, I really wish that the wrench in the plan was way more serious and lasted a little bit longer than that. Right. Well, and also the 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 other thing, the thing I liked about that scene, this that that scene with Don Cheadle is the is my favorite Don Cheadle scene in all three of these movies. I feel like he's unleashed in that in a way that I've I've never really bought his performance and the rest of it. Maybe because he's lost the accent or he's gained, you know, but got a new accent. But I think also that the other meta joke in there is that Super Dave has a history with that uniform as well. So there's a there there, you know, some there's a new Super Dave in town too in that bit. I feel like the F- with the FBI mugshot thing, it's like a lot of things in this movie. It's a little stunt that sort of makes sense in the scene at the moment, but doesn't connect fully to what happened before or later. It feels a little convenient. That that kind of thing feels a little convenient, especially if if you've got a character whose dad is in the FBI. Like, it right. just feels like there's other ways to do to do that, but they want to do it just to sort of just for us. One quick note, just to circle back really quickly. The only thing we know about Ocean's Eight that I can find is this the one picture release that I just sent to you guys of the of them all. On a oh, subway. right, right, right. Oh. Yes. So they're going to New York, oh, okay. which is for at least part of there the movie. There we go. And uh, that makes sense. I don't even really know who's in this movie. Oh, every. So we got Sandra Bullock. Uh, well, that's Sarah Paulson on the right, Kate Blanchett, Zoe Kravitz. Oh, cool. Uh, uh, Helena um, Bonham Carter is in it. Helena Bonham Carter. Yeah, right, it's, so it's, it's, gonna, it's a good so it's cast. Good. It's got potential. Oh, yeah. Olivia Munn. Did you say Sandra Bullock? I did. She uh, was. Deco- she's the first Deco- one we let Deco- off. Deco- she's Ocean, right? She's Sandra Ocean yes. or Debbie. whatever they're Debbie going Ocean, with. Yeah. Debbie yeah. Ocean, yeah. Debbie Ocean? Okay. Yep. Danny and Debbie? Oh, Katie Holmes is in it, too. Oh, wow. Oh, and Mindy, um, Mindy Kaling. And Mindy Kaling. That's the other one. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. One minor crossover that isn't really a crossover because we're not really going to cover it, but Mike, uh, I've been watching Swedish Dicks. Actually, so the timeline of all this is super weird because as we're recording this, we have not recorded a new Keanu Club for one of his new movies later this year. But as you're listening to this, we probably have, and I've probably talked about Swedish Dicks. Everything is super confusing. Time is a flat circle. Anyway. What year is this? Yeah, what year, what is, year this? is this? <laughs> Swedish Dicks is a... I don't know if it's a Swedish show or it's... It was some European show that Pop TV in America has bought and is airing. And Keanu plays this cowboy, this like hitman cowboy, and he's not in it enough for us to cover on that. But what I did sort of like as a crossover to Keanu Club is that the trick that Livingston, Eddie Jemison's character in this movie plays, where he steps on the tack during his yeah, interview, yeah. they do that in Swedish dicks, but they call it out. They're like, you're just stepping on a tack. Like, it's been done in so many movies or whatever. So I was like, oh, that's kind of a little bit of a Keanu Club crossover. I mean, we're not going to do an episode about Swedish dicks, but I was like, just looking for those inter-film, inter-podcast connections, and I, I caught that, which I thought was pretty cool. Another thing I really liked about this movie, because I feel like I haven't said enough things that I like about this yeah, movie, yeah. is when Brad Pitt is the seismologist, and he's giving that whole <laughs> spiel yeah. to Al Pacino about, like, you know, there's going to be the foreshock, and then there's going to be going to evacuate. And there's such a delayed reveal to show what he looks like, right? right? And then he's in a mullet, and he's in this, like, oversized mustache, and he's wearing shorts and, like, hiker boots, and just so 
white trash and just so want like it's just the sight alone is funny like that I, that might make that the picture for this episode because i just love him in that outfit we don't see him in it again it's just so so funny to me there's some pretty great mustache work in this yes, movie. Yes. Affleck is wearing one down in Mexico. And then my, my favorite shot of Clooney in the movie is when <laughs> yes. he's in the mustache and he's kind of got like a spray on tan and he's wearing a black turtleneck and like a gold chain, I think. And he's like standing by a slot machine and him and Brad Pitt are watching some guy get like bumped out of the casino. And he's given like this weird look like, yep can't try that or whatever and like he's got that big mustache looks kind of like burt reynolds <laughs> so yeah so they all got dressed up don Cheeto, like you mentioned like he even put on like those uh that grill or something he's wearing so <laughs> they're all wearing yeah matt damon with the nose so they're all getting they're all wearing prosthetics and getting dressed up a little more it seems another thing i really liked about this movie is the fact that Again, this is a movie that we've talked about. Is a movie that exists in a world where movies and TV exist and people watch them and the characters watch them. And Rusty shows up to Danny's hotel room and he's crying. He's like, I just bit into a, an onion or I cut an onion or whatever. And then they go in and he's been watching Oprah and Oprah's giving away all these beds to this family. He's like, you know, it's just not about the kids. It's about the whole thing. And then at the end, the scene ends with Rusty sniffling. Like, they're both crying now. And I just want to watch them watch Oprah. But then they take the gag to the next level when at the end, you know, the money that Andy Garcia donated to buy the second, or not donated, but gave them to buy the second drill, invested in the plan that was supposed to pay him back double. They donated to a camp for foster kids, and then he goes on Oprah to sort of be like, yes, this is why I donated that money, because their their story just touched me. And I love that this is a world, not only where the characters watch Oprah, that, that's, that would be enough, but then that the writers of the screenplay were willing to go that extra mile and the, the producers or whoever were able to have the connections to then get him on Oprah like it's just everything about that is just this wonderful beautiful sort of pointless but like adorable through line I am gonna dissent with you on this one man you don't like what I like about this movie. I don't you like different <laughs> things I think um, to me, that was one. That was the moment where I really turned on this movie. Not because I have Ed- the very, very end when no, Terry no, no, it goes on. No, Oprah. no, no. It's the scene where they're crying. Um, oh, where they're crying to Oprah when Clooney's yeah, watching yeah, yeah. Oprah. I, where, where I decided that yeah, this just really, truly didn't live up to the previous ones. And here's why: I think that f- this is meant to be, I think, a mirror scene to to the scene in Twelve, where um, Night Fox has changed Clooney's alarm, so he gets up. Like ridiculously early in the middle of the night, he and Rusty are in Rusty's room having wine in the middle of the night and like pouring on the floor and all this stuff. And that to me felt like, you know, like a a funny, goofy men bonding kind of thing. This felt like they were making fun. The movie is making fun of men who watch Oprah and cry. This felt a little (sighs) like like uh, we're making fun of we're making fun of sissies in this. And because it, because it makes it a joke, like he has to pretend. Oh, like it's almost like a, a gay panic sort of joke. Really? Well, not gay. But I, I mean, don't. That, I don't see no, no, that. No, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. Let me finish. Let me finish. <laughs> chill, chill. Not that not that there's any implicate. Not that this is a gay panic moment, but in the way that that's always suggestive. Like the reason this is funny is because they're crying at Oprah and. I don't think that's very funny. I, I, I don't I don't think that that's I, that to me feels like they're reaching for a joke like, ha ha, isn't this funny? They're watching Oprah and crying like, you know what I mean? Like you wouldn't imagine these guys watching Oprah and crying, would you? And I, I, I find that off. I find that off putting. 
interesting. I saw it sort of like the uh, Cougar Maxim joke where well, that it's one too. Just like, that oh. one too. I, I I take I take issue with that one too. Yeah, I mean, I take more issue with the Cougar thing, of course, but I mean, I just feel like. Oprah was giving away cars and building houses and like I would I mean I'd be flipping channels and you know I wouldn't full on cry I think that's an exaggeration but like I get a little caught up in yeah. what Oprah was, and was it's, it's doing as like is a good it? person and I don't I didn't really think it was a joke in that it felt it was more like look every we even they love Oprah everyone loves Oprah Oprah is sort of like the phenomenon i don't know i didn't see it as sort of like off-putting or mean-spirited in that direction at all i just thought it was like no like even even these guys like as bad as they are if they're tricking people doing this like they've got a good heart like you know why then does clooney have to feel embarrassed about it well, because he's a well, because he's a man. Exactly, he's a man. that's, that's a whole saying. other issue. Like, but no, but also, but also, so he's I, Danny I see this like. as a spiritual successor to the scene from the last movie where they're both in bathrobes drinking wine. Like they are. That's what I'm saying before, yeah, that's that scene works for me. This scene feels like they're like it's a bunch of guys sitting around on a table saying, "Oh, wouldn't it be funny if they were watching Oprah and crying?" Ha <laughs> ha, yeah, that's funny. Oh, and then it became really serious, and they're really feeling it. Like that really bothers me. I don't know. I, that's weird that we're coming down so hard on opposite sides of this. I also no, because I also feel like it's funny to me that in the middle of this heist, that he has time to just sit and watch Oprah. That's funny to me. That like it's not like it, he's just there, and it's, it doesn't feel like it's a show that's really active watching, even though he's actively engaged in it. That he just has time to sit in his hotel room while there's like all these, you know, they say at one point like we have ten plans. It's like yeah, that feels right for this movie. Like there's so much going on, and yet he has an hour to just sit and relax and watch right. Oprah. Like right. that's funny to me. So, right. So so then so then the scene is he opens the door, Brad comes in and is talking, talking, talking. Doesn't even notice that Oprah's on. We see in the background and we say, oh, he's watching Oprah. That's why he's crying. And then he. And then um, Brad says to him, oh, is she giving away cars? He's like, no, houses. He's like, oh, okay. And then, do you know what I mean? Like, but the, but the part of the, 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 the bit of him coming in and him saying, oh, I ate a pepper. I ate a pepper. I'm like, that's him saying, that's the star, the hero of the movie, the heterosexual hero of the movie telling us, I have to pretend I'm not watching Oprah. Well, I think that, I think it should bother you because we're too used to that, right? Like, I, I think that is more of a comment if it's unnecessary is why does Danny Ocean have to hide his feelings of how he really feels, you know? Like, that's fucked up. Like, I thought he was a man. But no, like, this movie is still stuck in the zone where it's like, real men don't okay. cry. And it's like, so well, actually, no, no, they, no. they, they kind of do. Just, if that is true, if the movie is knowing about that moment, then then find me any woman in this movie who doesn't just bend to the to the whims or isn't a, isn't an object for the camera to leer at. The gender politics in this movie suck, and the previous movies well, get a yeah. pass because of the in my mind because of what they do with the women in the movies. This movie fails women, and in that moment, fails men too. I feel like. Two other points about this. Number one, if we did the thing where Rusty comes in, doesn't see that they're on TV, and then at the end he's like, oh, they're giving away cars or whatever, I feel like we don't have that tender moment for Rusty. Like That's just him being like, oh, I watch whatever. I, I like the where that, Rusty's still Yeah, they the kind end. of bond a little more right. over that And the moment. other thing I think about this is that I think at their core, and maybe the movie doesn't do a good enough job at conveying this, but I think at their core, each of these guys is sensitive enough to admit to someone in private that they watch Oprah, that they sit around in bathrobes drinking wine, that they have a feminine side. But I think it's the fact that like he's caught off guard or that he knows that even though he knows, even though Danny knows that Rusty watches Oprah too, it won't stop Rusty from like making fun of him around the guys because it's just a bunch of guys hanging out. And I feel like maybe that's bad gender politics, but I feel like it's not a 
offensive in that same way. Like, I don't have a problem with this scene. I think it's really funny. I see, I, I agree with you wholeheartedly that, like, this movie does a massive disservice to women. I don't think it fails men in the way that you're saying it does. Agree to disagree. There's a bunch of different things. I don't have any more notes about the movie. I just have sort of bits of trivia. There's a bunch of notes in terms of what they call different things. They call the Brody when he's using the fake nose because of Adrian Brody. They're using the Billy Martin about Ruben's hospitalization for giving a second chance because Billy Martin was like this, I don't know if he was a drunk or just like a hothead, but he would like win World Series for the Yankees and then get fired and get brought back. It was this really like up and down ride. So, you know, a Billy Martin's like having a second chance on life. Um, Make things right, I guess. Yep. The Gilroy, which is what Linus uses to seduce Ellen Barkin, is an in-joke on Tony Gilroy, who wrote the Bourne movies and also Michael Clayton. So he's got connections to both Matt Damon and George Clooney. So it, why is he supposed to be, like, suave or something? Like, no. Or is he so unsuave that that's the joke? I don't know. He's also good buddies with the writers of the movie. So I, I, I think they, they may have slipped that in, knowing that they all sort of hung out together. The Irwin Allen, when Linus tells Ruben that Rusty's playing an Irwin Allen, Irwin Allen is known, I guess, apparently, I, I know the name, but I didn't know he did this, for a shaky cam. And so, you know, when Rusty's playing the Irwin Allen, you know, he's doing the disaster films, a shaky cam, whatever. So not only is he wearing a camera, but he's also doing the earthquake stuff. So it's all sort of huh. wrapped into that. And they use the Susan B. Anthony twice, which there's a Susan B. Anthony dollar coin that people confused for a quarter and would put in slot machines. And they call the thing that they do twice where the woman wins $30 million and then the uh, diamond star guy or whatever, the star hotels guy, wins $11 million at the airport. Airport, uh, with that special coin that Rusty or Clooney give to, but you know what I mean? Like, that's yeah. the Susan B. Anthony. Two other Godfather references. Pacino gets that gold phone, and there's the gold rotary phone in Godfather 2, which I didn't connect. That was just a IMDb thing. And then apparently when Clooney is giving Pacino the Billy Martin, he says, what I want, what's most important to me, Michael Corleone says to Salazzo in The Godfather. Mm-hmm. So... So again, just sort of like, you know, if you're looking for things, they're there. Not the obvious line. It's not, I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse or anything. I did notice um, when I guess the power goes off on the big computer and the the big heist is hitting, the first ball to land on a roulette hits 13. Well, yeah, well, they, the guy bets 11, 12, 13, and it hits on 13. Uh, uh. Also in that scene where everybody's winning money. I don't know if you noticed, but one of the guys cashing out money was Bulldog the Bruiser, the guy who fake beats up Clooney in the first movie. Oh, yeah. Dude, I did not pick up on that until uh, actually thinking about watching this movie this time. I made the connection. I was like, I always wondered who that bald guy was and why they focused on Twice. him. Twice. Like, they cut to him and they cut back to yeah, him. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I was like, I was always like, oh, he's really smart because he cut and run before, you know, yeah. things got too hairy yeah. in there. And then finally put it together. I was like, that's the guy I was beating up Danny. Oh, so Matt Damon's scene in Europe when he goes and picks up Eddie Izzard was filmed while he was filming The Bourne Ultimatum. It is also shot in a way that's sort of like The Bourne movies. Like, it's a handheld camera. It's in Europe. He's using a cell phone. He's saying dialogue like, you know, I don't yes, even know if I have yes. the right name. There's people right. after me or whatever. So, like, right. a little nod there. And also, the guy who wrote this movie also wrote Rounders. And so, in both movies, Matt Damon says, see you when I see you. So, like, that's the last thing he says in this movie. So, like, again, you know, maybe a coincidence or maybe just, like, a in-joke for people who have seen movies, you know? And this is sort of a franchise built off of a movie that was sort of made as an in-joke between the Rat Pack to begin with. So it's all, like, deep layers of, yeah, of uh, distant references. There was one thing I noted about 
Don Cheadle's character in this movie. He can fly a helicopter. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's just like we just need someone. <laughs> is he to flying the that. helicopter? Or is he just in the helicopter? No, he's someone's flying. Fly, he's definitely okay. flying it because he's like hovering over. You know, while they're connecting stuff and everything, yeah. But uh, I was like, okay, at that point, I'm like, why not? Why? Yeah. <laughs> well, just like how in the Fast and the Furious movies, not to bring it back there again, but everyone is now an expert marksman. Everybody knows every level of, you know, hand-to-hand combat. They can all drive cars. They can all, I guess they, they can't all hack computers. That's still kind of just a ludicrous thing. You know what I mean? But like, yeah. they may not be able to speak multiple languages, but they could definitely understand it in sort of like a Star Wars Chewbacca's talking to you type of way, you know, like, or like Han in this movie. Like people will, I feel like people talk to the Fast and Furious gang in other languages, and they respond in English. Yeah. Like they totally understand. Yeah. My last two notes are both about Ocean's Twelve deleted scenes. So getting real deep here, Ellen Barkin had a cameo cut from Ocean's Twelve, which is apparently on the Ocean's Twelve Blu-ray. So I guess that there was some kind of continuity that was supposed to happen, or maybe they, maybe he cast her in this because right, right. he wanted her in that. Who knows? Peter Fonda had a deleted scene in Ocean's 12. He was supposed to be in this movie, but Cage Nection was filming Ghost Rider and couldn't do this movie. Oh, wow. (laughs) That's wild. He would have been back from the limey. The only other thing I have is that Soderbergh filmed all of Al Pacino's scenes, which there are a lot of them, in three weeks. Like, Al Pacino's probably like, yeah, you can have me, but, like, you only got me for three weeks. He's like, all right. Speaking of how fast Soderbergh shoots, I feel like he could have, you know, it's not like Fonda was doing much in Ghost Rider. He was playing Satan for like two two or three scenes. Like, I feel like he could have hopped over and filmed a couple scenes of him, like in the Oceans movie, doing his thing if he had to. But that's too bad. But that's all I got about Oceans 13. I feel like I was hard on it. It's somewhere in the middle of the 18 movies now that we've ranked on Letterboxd. I think it's like eight or nine for me. So I still like it. I just wanted more when I liked Oceans 12 a lot more than I thought I was going to. This was a little bit of a disappointment in comparison. Yeah, looking at my rankings, we both have it. You and I have it at number nine. We both ended up placing it in the same place. And the the difference above it, for me, I have traffic ahead of it, and you have, I think it was Solaris. Solaris ahead of it. Yeah. So it's yeah. It, all all things said, it's, it does sort of fall, you know, in the middle. I I wanted to say one thing about the writers of this movie that you mentioned. There's a, it's a it's a team of writers who, in addition to rounders, would go, are going to go on to write Girlfriend Experience that we're gonna that we're gonna get, and they write the show Billy, the movie or the TV. Show. The, the movie. Okay. Brian Koppelman, one of the pair of writers, has a great, great uh, podcast, uh, since we're sort of on podcast land here, called The Moment that's now through uh, through Panoply that you can get through through uh, just anywhere. And he has interviews with a lot of his collaborators, one with Tony Gilroy, uh, which is how I know that they're that they go way, way back. Anyway, if you're if oh. you're in if you're in if you're into podcasts as I assume you are because you're listening to us, you should definitely check out his podcast The Moment. We've been a little hard on him here. I think that maybe in retrospect for number 12, finding a movie that was not written as an Oceans movie and turning it into an Oceans movie was actually probably a pretty smart idea because you're not starting from the point of saying, how do I construct all this so everybody has their moment and it hits all these beats instead of taking something that was all, already had the heist beats and all that stuff and and sort of adding the characters to it. In retrospect, I think that's probably was a, was a smart way to have, to have gone about it. My last thought on this movie is just that I really like this world. I like these guys. I like to hang out with these guys. I'd watch Oprah with these guys un- unabashedly anytime. I would drink wine with them in the middle of the night. I would let them teach me how to gamble better than I than I do now. You know, so anywhere they want to take me, I will go. Which is why for me, yeah, this is not this is by no means my favorite Soderbergh or my favorite of the Oceans movies for sure. Right. But it's not the end of the pack. I would rather watch this before I watch a lot a lot of other things. 
You know what I just realized based on what you just said, based on, you know, you let them teach you how to play poker or whatever. You know what's missing from this movie? Toe for Grace. Toe for Grace. Toe for Grace is is a lucky charm. Yeah. Yeah. How great if he became part of the actual (gasps) crew and they used him in the heist like and he's like is in it and he does good like that would have been great and he's like at the lowest of the pecking order now (laughs) (laughs) he's the new linus and linus is just so mean to him because he can finally be mean to somebody push somebody around mike any last thoughts about oceans 13 yeah i mean like i like it that's the thing it's like maybe it's it's not my favorite oceans movie but it's by no means soderbergh's worst movie it's got issues but it's still fun i think part of what helps is just how damn fast it flies like you you know before you know what's going on you're kind of on to the next thing if you know if you can't keep track of what's happening sooner or later you'll kind of like get back on that track and be able to follow the movie again so i like that about it Uh, i love the way it looks again i just think it's really well shot there's a lot of those really long takes one of my favorite shots is actually just when danny and rusty and i think it was eddie izzard it's like shot from outside and it's like really blue and they're just through the window. I mean, it's just like such a mundane shot. Oh. I mean, that's the thing. Like everything in this movie just like looks really that nice. Re- that reminds me of that one shot where they're looking at the murky green water and the whole scene is in the reflection of the water. And you're just looking at Al Pacino in like this murky reflection where he fires the guy. And like, just like it's little things like that. You're like, oh, right. This is a guy who really knows what he's doing. Yeah. So, I mean, there's stuff going on in this movie that make it worth watching. Uh, I wish it was a little stronger plot wise, story wise. Like, I almost wonder, does this is this a better Ocean's 12? And would Ocean's 12 have made a better Ocean's 13 with a little kind of more tweaking? I think, you know, in the in the grand scheme of trilogies, I almost feel like the second one is like, you know, so much more of a departure. It would have worked better a little later if we had just gotten tired of Vegas earlier. That's the other thing. I wish we didn't go back to Vegas so soon. If we were, I mean, at this point, I wouldn't have minded if we were still in a casino. But like, yeah overseas somewhere else i don't know well in in defense of the franchise my final note is that it feels like we're back in vegas so soon because eight episodes ago we did oceans 11 so we watched that you know two months ago or whatever but it was six years in between movies you know what i mean so like it was it was a lot longer in between so it's like oh we were just here but like not not really i mean kind of but not really but all in all, you know, it's still it's still a fun time. These guys are just, like, such really good actors. And it's so cool to just be able to get all these personalities together again and do something loose and not so serious. Because most of these guys are, like, generally serious actors. You know, most the body of their work is dramatic stuff. So it's great, again, to be reminded of and see them perform, you know, like clowns. And want to perform like, to know that this is what they want. And for a lot of it to work so well is very pleasing. So yeah, I like this world. I like these guys. And I'm looking forward to what they do with the next movie. And also just keep in mind that there are five Oscar winners and five more Oscar nominees in this cast. So, I mean, it's it's guys who can be fun and silly, but they're also like, they can act. So like you were saying, you know, there's 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 the proof is in the pudding. So for all things Cinemakers, including the other two Oceans movies that we've covered, you can go to cageclub.me or facebook.com slash cageclub or at cageclubpod on Twitter. You can find all of the shows that we've done everything else tobin might still have a new show coming out this year mike might have his own new show coming out this year something we kind of talked about a little bit in this episode wink wink nudge nudge (laughs) who knows when that's happening because we are still four months in the past almost five months in the past we are ahead of the game what year is it but anyway for everything that we're doing go to cageclub.me facebook.com slash cageclub at cageclubpod on twitter or you can email mailbag at cageclub.me and let us know what you think I'm Joey Lewandowski. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Tobin Addington. And we'll see you next time on Cinemakers.